Morning, everybody. I don't have a really good reason for the energy I feel this morning. I am, I'm kind of wired. I'm really excited to be with you. I'm excited to be in church in particular. And I don't know, I can't calm myself down in the first service. Um, one of our security guards, uh, Blaine Bacon, anybody know him? Anybody know him? He's a massive hulk of a guy. He's over by the door and I, I just, I don't know, I did something really expressive and just kind of, he just kind of gently looked at me as Taylor does and just kind of like, you going to be okay? <laughs> I don't know. I'm ready to go. Yeah, Taylor showed me a lot of grace in the fact that he didn't make fun of me or anything. He showed me this. He's like, you're going to be all right. You're, you're fine. Just kind of calm me down. I, I think it has something to do with the fact though that I've been stewing, if you will, or marinating in this concept of grace. If you've noticed, we had a theme this morning in our worship and we're not done. And that concept of, or this reality of grace, what has been shown to us, what has been delivered to us, is is worth wrestling with to a much greater extent than I think we do. In other words, we don't realize how badly, I mean badly, we need the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have our own stresses in life, which you know, we get confused about the events and the things that we see going on. We have despair from time to time. We have our mistakes. We sin against each other. We bundle even the things that, that we want to do well. It's not even so much our, our blatant mistakes. It's just that our humanness needs a lot of covering over it at all times. I want to preach this message. I have this idea of where it's going to go and what I want it to do for you and, and for the Lord's glory. But I'm probably going to mess it up. It's what we do. Even in our best intentions, we fall short of this perfection of what God has for us. And so this, uh, this thing called grace is so much more than we make it out to be. We, we use words like gracious, uh, that person's gracious, or isn't that dancer graceful and stuff. So we've got an idea of it. But, but the Lord intended, he delivered something very profound, very practical, and it kind of invades our space because you and I have a tendency to settle for okay. If it's relationships and how we interact with one another, what we say or do for and to each other, as long as we're okay afterwards, we're going to make it. Grace does something much more radical. It doesn't settle for okay. It gets to the heart of the matter and it actually engages in this transformation that you and I find quite uncomfortable. If it's a, an argument we're having in our marriage or with our friends or something along those lines, what we pray for is a passage of time to smooth things over. Or even we say time heals all wounds, right? Let's just not talk about it anymore. You, we, we both said some things we didn't mean. We say these things and we just kind of sweep it under and we want to be okay with one another. And the minute we get a clue from the other person that we are okay, matters resolved. It's done until it rears its ugly head later. So we need a grace that goes beyond yours and my uh, uh, willingness to just settle for okay. Fortunately for us, Jesus did not settle for okay. We're also going to see, though, from our text in, in uh, John chapter 1, that grace doesn't come by itself. 
that grace is informed, grace is packaged in this word called truth. And we're going to see how Jesus is the full expression of both grace and truth. Jesus came, the scriptures have told us that he tented with us, he tabernacled, he moved into the neighborhood. He came to accomplish something massive, not just so that we could have a little religion we could sprinkle, not just so that he could improve our communication techniques, not just so that we could get an aspect of what it means to serve one another by following his great example. He came to transform the heart of man. He came to do this radical procedure. He came as the very expression of the heart of God. We've been studying this. We, he came fully as God's character. He even said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. People were saying, we want to, it's great meeting you, Jesus. Don't get us wrong. We're really excited to know you. But what's God like? What's the Father like? And he says, you're looking at him. Now, in person, he's not God the Father. He's God the Son. But in character, he is the revelation of God the Father. He came in his character. He is the embodiment of his truth. And of course, of his holiness, his perfection, his purity. Jesus came to do something incredible. He didn't just stop in on the planet that he made some thousands of years prior. And he didn't say, well, I wonder how they're doing. I haven't gone and done any maintenance for a while. And he swings through the planet and says, what have you done? I created you in perfection. I, I, I spoke this into existence. It had everything you needed and you bungled it. What are you doing? He didn't just stop in. He saw the moment that we fractured that relationship in the garden. And his plan of redemption, his demonstration of that grace was playing out ever since. Jesus wasn't some distant entity or a distant deity. He was the presence of God among the people that he created. And he came to deliver a comprehensive grace that when fully understood or when fully comprehended or even not even fully, even if we start peeling back the layers, it starts to blow our mind. We've been singing about it. The hymn writer couldn't help but express it as amazing grace. This is what he came to do to transform our hearts, not just give us something to add on top of. Tara and Todd Storch, some years ago, lost their 13-year-old daughter in a skiing accident. And because of the nature of her injuries, the medical team, as they were dealing with the parents' grief and shock and all these things, they had to gently suggest to them that she was a perfect candidate to donate her organs and that her donation could mean life for somebody else. And as you hear them tell their story, they've told it on, on shows like Ellen and others. They've been interviewed by People Magazine. Everything's a nationwide story. They said that it was as soon as the request came to them, even with all their grief and their shock and their pain, they knew that was the thing they needed to do. We need Taylor's life to count for something, to move on. And Taylor, as we say, would have wanted that. And so for the parents, there was no real decision to be had. They still had to deal with their loss. They still had to deal with all the pain of that, but they were encouraged. They were, they, they found purpose in it because this woman named Patricia would receive this heart. And Patricia received the heart and, 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 and made the most of it and, and valued it in her life. And she cared so much for the donation that she reached out to Tara's parents, I mean, to Taylor's parents and said, I want to meet you. But more importantly, I want you to hear your daughter's heart. And so they came and they met 
And, of course, you can imagine the emotions that are involved in that. And she handed them their own stethoscope and said, just, I want you to listen. And so as the, as the storches are leaning in and they're listening to us, they're bump, 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 bump. They're hearing, they are hearing Taylor in Patricia Winter's chest cavity. The life of their daughter was going on, and that's what they were hearing. When God the Father leans into us and he puts his ear on us, he hears the heartbeat of Jesus Christ. He sees that life is what's carried through. He has gone through the loss of, of watching his son. We just sang about it. He was murdered for you and for me in this act of amazing grace. And God leans in and he hears the heart of his son beating in our lives. See, he came to do something bigger than what we settle for. He came to do something much more transformative than the things that we usually experience in this Christian life. He says through the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 36, I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put with you and I'll remove the heart of stone from you and give you a heart of flesh. In order for us to even begin to comprehend grace, we have to understand the radical heart transplant that's taken place in the lives of believers. This brings us to John chapter one. We're going to revisit verses we've already read together. And even one verse is a parenthetical statement that we're going to, we're going to read in its context, but we're going to gloss over for our study because it's going to pay more, um, uh, benefit to us next week when we start talking about John the Baptist. So let's look at verse 14 of John chapter one. And the Bible says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We know that this is Jesus who came, moved into the neighborhood, came in with us, the, uh, Jesus Emmanuel, the incarnate coming with us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father. You can almost picture John reminiscing on the things that he's seen. And John is saying, you could, he sits back in the chair and he says, man, we've seen some amazing things. I keep referencing this act of the transfiguration that the other gospels cover as Jesus is, is, is invited into the presence of his father on the mountainside. And and the scripture says his, his, he is glorified in the presence of Peter, James, and John. He's having a conversation with Moses and Elijah, all the great prophets that they've revered and studied all these years. And it's all happening in front of those three guys. You can just picture John saying, Oh, we've seen some things. We've seen his glory. We've seen him resurrect the dead. We've seen him himself come out of the grave. He says, this is the glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out. This was he of whom, whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we've all received grace upon grace. We just sang that song. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. What I want us to see first and foremost is that Jesus is the deliverer of this incredible, amazing grace that God intended to share with those that he created. Those that have walked away from him, those that have rejected his holiness and instead traded that in for a life of self-centeredness. This is what the law did for us. When, when we refer to the law, you picture God speaking to, the pro, to, to Moses and saying, write this down, and he's chiseling this out. I can't help but think of the Flintstones whenever I think about that coming on the... You picture the little pterodactyl with the pointy beak. 
This anybody seen the Flintstones ever before? Then help me out. I'm dying up here. <laughs> People are like, no, no, I don't think Flintstones have a place in the Bible. No. So God says, these are the commandments that I want you to share with my people. I, these are the 10. And then he goes on to, to speak even more through Moses. This is how we're going to set up a civil society. This is how we're going to do these things. And so God has instituted his law. He shows us in those 10 commandments who he is and what he cares about. But even more importantly than that, he shows us who we aren't. We say, well, if we're away from God, how do we make our way back? And he says, well, it starts here. I got to post these up on the wall. You've got to see the areas that you violated. God posts the law and he says, this is who I am. This is me in my perfection. And, and you have to do this. These 10 things for starters, you have to do this. And, and don't make a single mistake. The writer in the New Testament says that if you're guilty of it in one point, you're guilty of the whole sweeping thing. So he says, I'm going to post these for you to see. Picture it like in a town square. It goes up on the telephone pole. What are we going to do to be okay with God? And people start going, we can't do this. It's out of our reach. It's out of, it's, it's out of our ability. Even if we had a good week, I might get seven out of the 10 down but I'm going to blow it. This is why the law was given to us. You see, there's a great grace in the fact that God says, I want to tell you what's not working well in your life. He cares enough about his creation, though they've rejected him and fallen it, fallen away from him. He cares enough to show you are wandering away. You are hopelessly lost. You are, are short of my glory. We have a tendency sometimes to think that God's pretty mean for pointing that out. You know, why can't I just go along with, with what I knew? This is what Paul says in Romans 7. He says, what then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. You're like, yeah, Paul, that's my point. If he hadn't told us that we were wrong, we wouldn't be guilty. But that isn't the way law works, is it? The laws of physics and those are, they're true whether we've discovered them or not. So this is the reality of our situation. We fall short of the glory of God. And God could have said, and I'm done with you. But he didn't. Paul says, if it had not been for the law, I wouldn't have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now that he said that, I go, oh, that's what I've been doing. He says in verse 12, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. You see, even the Old Testament writers understood that as uncomfortable, as difficult it is to know the truth, they found some joy and some comfort in being told how far short they had fallen. The law was to be revered. The law was to be loved. The law was to be obeyed. This is important for us to camp on as a church, what we would call ourselves a New Testament church in the economy of grace, in the atmosphere of God's grace having been made present to us. We sometimes think, don't talk about law. Don't talk about the things that people do that are wrong and, and unjust and ungodly. And we don't need to dwell on that. We've got grace, but I'm hoping to show us that we need both. Psalms 1, David says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight, his happiness, his peace, his meditation is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he saturates his mind, his heart, his entire being with the thoughts as he ponders what this law means to him. 
There's great joy to be found in it because it's an expression. It's a revelation, if you will, of the character of God. If you look at the Ten Commandments and start, instead of just saying, what are the things we need to do? Start looking at those commandments and say, what does this tell me about what I need to know about God? How does this reveal what he cares about? Well, we know he cares about life. We know he cares about his worship above all things because there's none higher than him. We know that he cares about um, respecting one another and not taking advantage of other people. We know that he cares about the institution of marriage. All of these things are revealed to us in the Ten Commandments. So rather than just being a list of all the drudgeries, and instead it walks us into the presence of who God is. So the psalmist says, when I think about that, I find delight. But the law came short of doing the full job. The law was not the full instrument of grace that mankind needed, but it was something else for us. It was, it was kind of a leader, a handholder, if you will, that brought us towards the grace that we would discover in the person of Jesus Christ. This is how Paul says it in Galatians 3. He says, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law. That's where we get some of that negative thinking. So the law must be bad, but Paul just told us in Romans, it's not sin. It's just that it held us captive because it said, you're guilty. And it was right. We were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian. Some of your translations may say it was our schoolmaster. It was, it was the one that picked you up in the morning and brought you to class and said, this is the way we go. And then it sat you down and said, now learn. That's what the law did for us. You need to get to the schoolroom and you're far away from it. So I'm going to take your hand and make sure you get there. The law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified or set right by this mechanism that we have that we do so poorly called faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under the guardian. It let go of our hand. For in Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God through faith. So what the law couldn't do, couldn't get us all the way there, grace came and completed the journey. Now I've been throwing out some terms. We've been singing about grace a lot. Like I said, we have our own uses of the word in our modern culture and everything. Let me just talk with a couple of word pictures here of what grace means in the scriptures. Before I get there though, I want to introduce you to grace's cousin named Mercy. If you're struggling for children's names, Mercy and Grace are awesome. So Grace's cousin Mercy is the holding back of the smackdown that you and I deserve. The hand is lifted and raised and it's ready to come down. And what do we say? Have mercy. Don't follow through. Mercy says, okay, I'm going to stay my hand. I'll hold back and you won't receive the beat down that you rightly deserve. Grace completes that journey. So mercy, we're saved from the punishment, but we're still kind of feeling like, I don't know where I stand. They didn't beat me, but they didn't say they love me. Grace says, well, let's hug it out. Come on in. This is what grace feels like. We're all good. Very, very simple. Let's put it in financial terms. I've racked up, say, 20 grand in credit card debt. And I'm seeing no light at the end of the tunnel. No matter how many jobs I take on, no matter what, I just don't make enough to get myself out of this. So I call, um, you know, 1-800, I can't pay my bill. 
and uh, they answer the they answer the phone, and and I say, look, I know what your what my balance is. I know what you're looking at on your screen. I I just can't do it. And that person's like, you know what? I don't know. I feel good. I, and I've got the authority. I've got this one button right here, and I'm gonna boop push it. Your twenty grand just went to zero. That's mercy. Don't I, I know I owe you twenty thousand. I know if I don't pay you, you're going to call me. If you've ever been in this situation, I was in my young adult life. Uh, I know you're going to call me three different times. I know that you're going to find a way uh, throughout the day. I mean, every day, three different times. I know you're going to find a way to harass me, to get what's yours and everything. And you're right, but I can't pay it. Mercy says, you know, what? I'm going to stop badgering you and I'm going to wipe it clean which is awesome. Imagine how we would feel if we had that much lifted off our shoulders. Mercy is an incredible thing. It's not, it's not less than, it just does a different task. So mercy says, I remove the burden, I remove the guilt off of you. But what that person didn't do for me on the phone was they didn't set me up with a, a life that would avoid me getting back in that spot sometime soon. I didn't become, a, a, I just became a person without debt. I didn't become a less debting kind of person, if that's even the right way to say that. My practices haven't transformed. They're still giving me credit cards, strangely enough, because that's what people do. And I can go rack those things up. And who knows if in six months, a year, three years, I won't be making that same call saying, I know I'm $20,000 in debt. Mercy just relieved me of that bill. Grace comes in and says, here's what we're going to do. You have no clue how to manage your finances. We're going to teach you. Then we're going to set up some accountability for you to do it right. But to give you the right start, to let you know that we're really in it for you, we're going to put some money in your bank account because you're going to learn how to live on this thing we call cash. And so you're going to do this and you're going to get ahead of this need of wanting everything in the moment so that you get yourself burdened with this credit debt. Grace came in and said, we're going to resituate your life. It's almost like what we saw from Ezekiel. I'm going to come in and give you a new heart. We're going to replace the stony one you've been living with. Grace comes in and does what mercy could not. And so this phrase that we see, grace upon grace, has been bantered about by the theologians, and they wrestle with this, this word um, anti in the Greek, but upon is what we see here in, the, in our translation. Um, there's several ways of looking at this. I liked two of them. I thought that two of them, no matter how you look at grace in the scripture, were going to be accurate. The only thing we have to argue with is whether or not this exact sentence means one of these things. And I don't think that's as important for us to camp on. So I'm going to share with you two ways of interpreting this phrase or this word anti, but we're going to say how both of them help us in this understanding of grace. The first is similar to what we sang in the song when we started off our service today. Grace on top of grace. You know, we did that one. So grace on top of is this idea of a tide coming in and each wave replaces the previous one a little bit deeper, right? As the ocean waves come in, it makes a line on the sand. The next one comes in, it makes a deeper line. This grace on top of grace, it keeps piling on the last amount that it gave. Now, right then and there, you and I can stop and say, well, that's what I need. It seems as though every time the Lord forgives me of the thing that I tripped over or I did to myself or to somebody else or something like that, he comes in like a wave of grace and he, he assures me that he's forgiven me. He sets me up, rebuilds me, does all those things. And I'm like, I'm good. I'm square, ready to go. 
A few days later, some other aspect of things, a new temptation comes in, a new pressure in life. Some, I find myself sometimes in that same trap, doing that same thing. And I'm like, Lord, you got another wave coming? Because I know I expended the last one, but I need new grace. I need something that looks like grace piling on top of grace continually in my life. That's where we are. And we know from our scriptures that that is a truth and that is a reality about God's grace. I think perhaps maybe the, the cleaner um, uh, translation of this for our text here, though, is a phrase that we could say grace instead of grace, which is sounds a little bit more like um, better than the last one. It's a little bit unclear if I'm hitting this right. So please don't go out and quote me on this, even though a bunch of people just saw me say that online. It's been nice working with you. Um, grace instead of grace is a little bit truer, I think, to the context wherein we've been talking about the contrast between law and what Jesus brought, the full expression of grace and truth. So we have an initial grace, if you will, by the revelation of the law that did us the service of helping us understand who we are before God, did us the service of revealing his heart and character to us. But there was a better grace, if you will, that came in the expression of Jesus Christ. that says, you can't get there on your own. So that's what Jesus came to do. So instead of it just a repeat of more and more grace, it could actually be pointing to an, Im- an improvement, if I dare say that word. Seems wrong to use that because it's not like God just said, ah, that plan didn't work. I'm gonna have to do better than that. No, he always intended for law to go only so far so that grace was always intended to pick up the rest. But back to what we're looking at here is that the law answers the question for us. What does God require of me? And as we've said, it's a pretty steep list and we're far, far away from being able to check off the boxes. So Jesus answers the question, what is God willing to do to make up the difference? How much does he love me? How much is he willing to sacrifice? What method, plan, or, 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 or device, if you will, is he willing to institute so I don't have to continue to live in this gap? And that's answered in Jesus. So first and foremost, we understand that Jesus is the deliverer of God's grace. But as we said before, this is a combo deal. So let's look at truth real quickly before we wrap all this up. Let's go back and revisit verse 14. Scripture says the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we've seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth going hand in hand. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. We can't really see what grace is until we see the truth of who we are. Not even so much that we'll appreciate grace more, which we certainly will. When you know you've really done something and someone kind of lets you off the hook or forgives you and you go, I didn't deserve that. It makes your appreciation of that grace that's been demonstrated. You experience so much more of it. It kind of energizes you. you. You're like, I'll do anything to, to pay you back. And they're like, you don't need to. I don't care that I don't need to. I want to. It does that thing to us. But that isn't the only thing that truth does for us. Truth reminds us that this grace is available whether you and I feel it or not. We press so much for an experience of grace. We press so much for this, this knowledge of this walking feeling of I'm right with God. I'm, I'm in a flow with him. 
I don't know if you guys can relate to this or not, but sometimes those feelings are there and sometimes they're not. It's kind of why I said I don't know why I'm so energetic this morning because some days you just kind of feel like I'm ready to go, charging hell with a squirt gun. No? And then other times you're just like, oh, I don't know. Let's just let's talk about God or something. I don't know. What do we do? That's the reality of our human existence because we need so much grace covering in our lives. So we can't ignore the importance of the law. We can't emphasize grace without acknowledging the truth of our own failure because that wouldn't be a true or a full understanding of grace. This is how Jesus said it to those who are listening in John 8. He says, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. And you'll know the truth and it is the truth that will set you free. Truth is this thing that we have to pass through in order to experience this grace. When I said before that we settle for so much less in our interactions with one another, we settle for so much less in our offenses to one another, we very rarely say, look, I did something wrong. And I owe you better than that. And I've asked the Lord for his forgiveness and by his mercy and his grace, he has forgiven me, but I haven't gotten your forgiveness yet. I need to hear the words if you'll forgive me. And sometimes we're just like, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, it's cool. And I understand we're not going to have this little sermon every time we need to heal our wounds with one another. But you see the difference in wrestling with the truth that we pass through this acknowledgement of what I've done and you don't owe me anything. In fact, what you owe me is the beatdown that I deserve. But if you'd show me that mercy not to give it to me and then you'd also show me the grace to restore our relationship, I'll be forever grateful. You see, we don't get to grace unless we travel through some truth. And this truth was foreshadowed in the Old Testament in prophecies and types and pictures, all the things that theologians have helped us allow, allowed us to go back and look at the Old Testament and say, that's where Jesus is and that's where he is and that's where he is. And walking us through the fact that Jesus has been page one to the end. He's through the whole thing. And this is the revelation of this truth now made clear in the person of Jesus. And and those that are watching it, their minds are being blown. Even the writer of Hebrews says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. I want to see if I can just demonstrate or just share with you the demonstration, I think, of the combination of grace and truth happening in what Jesus did. Uh, with a woman that we see in our Bible headings, a woman taken in adultery. It's going to be coming up for us in John chapter 8, I believe. So as we move our way through the chapters, we'll be revisiting this. So hopefully you won't mind the, the repetition of this. But I think it's one of the clearest instances of how grace and truth come together to to perform what God had intended for a radical transformation all along. So this woman, who I'm going to say in air quotes, was taken in adultery was was uh, the reason why I say this, because I don't really believe all the circumstances. I, it's not that I'm doubting that she was uh, in sin. I'm not doubting the fact that she had perhaps an error in judgment or whatever was going on, that she was actually guilty of the act. What I don't agree with or don't trust are the circumstances. That these religious leaders, these gurus, these guys that know everything that everyone's supposed to do, and they have no problem telling you how you're supposed to do it, 
who have been so offended and threatened by the presence of Jesus and they want to dismantle his, his loyalty, his following that's, that's starting to uh, threaten their, their power and their prestige. They happen to know when he's teaching. They happen to know who's guilty of adultery and they happen to catch her in the act. I don't know about you, but there's a lot of strange circumstances that would have to line up perfectly for them to be these innocent bystanders who are trying to protect the reputation of God Almighty, if you catch my drift here. So they catch this woman. So in truth is guilty of the act and they bring her, throw her before Jesus. Who knows what state or shape she was in? Who knows whether or not she was presentable for public or any of these kinds of things? So all this shame and embarrassment, all this drama, all this setting, and they come before Jesus and they say, the law that was given to us says we need to cast stones because she was guilty of adultery, caught in the very act. So we need to take these softball-sized stones and we need to pummel her with them until she dies. That's what the law says. But you're a good teacher. You claim to speak for God. So are we right? Is this what we do? And what does Jesus do? He, he kind of ignores, seems like he's ignoring their question at first. And he goes and he starts stooping and he's writing something on the ground. We, we really have no idea what he's writing. We don't know if it's towards them or if it's for her or if he really is like just playing his own version of tic-tac-toe or something. You know, he's not. He's doing something meaningful, but we don't know what it is. And they get a little impatient with him and they say, hey, don't you have a response for us? He goes, yeah, I do. Because he's the full embodiment of truth, he says, you know what? You're right. She's as guilty as they come. And you're also right. You've interpreted the law the right way. She deserves to die. And you know whose responsibility that falls on? Us. So, so you're right. We're going to pick up our stones and we're going to bludgeon her to death. You've interpreted it right. You guys are wise. Thank you for bringing this wicked sin to our attention. Now I'm embellishing a little bit. Jesus says, but what we're going to do so that we do this orderly is that I want those of you that have never sinned to cast the first stone. And, and the scripture even spells out for us here that there is some age distinction between those that wanted to condemn her and kill her. And it says the older ones started dropping their stones first, basically. It's almost like they had enough wisdom to realize he's pegged us. We're in a corner. We don't come out winning. And to them, winning was everything. They had to position themselves right. It was about maintaining the power of the synagogue, all those kinds of things. And they're like, there's no way we can follow through with this right now because he just became our champion. He just defended her. But you see what Jesus didn't do? He didn't ignore the sin that she was in. So instead he says, go ahead, throw the first stone. And they start dropping them and they start walking away and leaving her. Mercy held that hand back. Truth exposed the sin for what it was. Truth pointed out the law that was given to them. Truth pointed out all those things. But then Grace said, I have another question. Grace looks at her and says, where'd your accusers go? Think about that question. I was reading a chapter by um, Max Lucado this week about this story. And he said, what a profound question that is for even you and me. When, when Jesus chases away all the people that are trying to cast stones, and he says, so where'd your accusers go? And we're like, well, I still hear their voices. They're still haunting me everywhere I go. And Jesus is like, well, you need to listen to my voice. I am the embodiment of grace and truth, not them. So I have a question for you. Where did your accusers go? Looking around, seeing none. 
Instead, she sees only Jesus, who's then able to forgive her of her sins. And, and if you even look at how he did this and, and, and coming to her rescue so publicly, imagine what an, a launching pad this gives her. Not only was she nearly killed for her sin, which we'll get through to most of us, but now she's just been set up publicly. She's got a defender. So the likelihood of her walking through town and having to wear that scarlet letter and always having that sin follow her around, drag her around, is starting to dwindle and go away because they really like Jesus and they can't believe what he just did for her. And he did it so publicly that they're going to be like, hey, don't mess with her. She's on his good side. So in grace, not only does he say your sins are forgiven, go and don't repeat these things anymore. He also gives her that further practical step of saying you don't you don't need to walk around town with your head in shame either this is what the grace of jesus christ looks like in all of its radical glory i want to leave us with just a couple of verses to ponder um one in particular i highlight the bottom of your notes um i hope you're grabbing notes as they're being handed out when you come in i'm trying to keep as much repetitive information on there so that you can um you know, wrestle with it, think about it, be comforted by it throughout the week. First verse I want to mention is 1 John chapter 3, again by the same author, verses 19 through 20. He says, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him, which we need. Let's be honest. We are faithless people so often. We need reassurance. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And he knows everything. I think a lot of us need to memorize that verse. I think a lot of us need to allow it to kind of ruminate in our spirit so that we understand that you and I will condemn ourselves far greater than God is condemning us because all of the condemnation that he knows we deserved, he put on Jesus. So that's why we claim him and put our faith in him. Hebrews 10 strengthens us for us. Verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean. Or I like the way the new century version says set free from an evil or a guilty conscience and our bodies are washed with pure water. God's grace even goes so far as to helping you uh, comprehend this truth in a peaceful way so that you can experience it, so that you can know it that it can shape you. The theologian Stott says, grace is God loving, God stooping, God coming to the rescue, God giving himself generously in and through Jesus Christ. This is the radical grace that you and I need. This is what we've been rescued by. I'm going to ask the worship team to make their way back up. We're going to close out our time celebrating the greatness of this grace. Could you please stand and let's close our time in prayer. Lord God, I thank you, Lord, for giving us this exchange between you and this woman who's been so shamed by our sin and used as a prop for those who are trying to explain you away. I thank you, Lord, for the way that you handled it, but I thank you, Lord, that your truth and grace were on full display and that same grace and truth are available to us. I pray that we would encounter it. I pray we'd wrestle with it. I pray that we'd claim it to really be set free by the truth that you've saved us from the power of our sin. And Lord, it's because of that we give you all the praise, the glory, and the heart of our celebration this morning. In Jesus' name.
Amen.